0: When we read, please remember, we're reading God's Word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that there was being what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose, ne- whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, "'You're out of your mind.' "'But she kept insisting that it was so, "'and they kept saying, "'It is his angel.' "'But Peter continued knocking, "'and when they opened, "'they saw him and were amazed. "'But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, "'he described to them how the Lord "'had brought him out of the prison. "'And he said, "'Tell these things to James and to the brothers.' "'Then he departed and went to another place. "'Now when day came, "'there was no little disturbance among the soldiers "'over what had become of Peter. "'And after Herod searched for him "'and did not find him,' He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blassus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and send us bold as missionaries into the world. Thank you. We may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. It's uh, fun to be able to open God's word this morning here as we continue our uh, study in the book of Acts. Uh, I want to invite you to join us next week um, for our uh, sermon. I guess it's sort of a sermon, uh, <laughs> It's kind of unconventional. It's called Ask Anything. And uh, what it'll be is me and Josh and Seth, so our teaching team. And what we'll be doing is taking live a Q&A through text message and so we'd love you to come. If there's anything at all that you have questions about, uh, we'll do our best to try to answer as many of them as we can and so it'll be kind of fun and different. Uh, M- Molly asked me the other day, how do you prepare for that? And I said, pray. I don't really know how else to prepare for that. So it should be a lot of fun and I uh, hope you'll join us uh, next week for that. A- as we look at Acts chapter 12, I've got a little Bible trivia question for you uh, as, we, as we start here. Um, and so don't answer out loud, okay? I'm gonna give you a chance to answer another way, so don't answer out loud. The question is, how many books of the Bible do not contain the word God? Do not mention God? How many books of the Bible do not mention God? How many of you think zero? Come on, be bold, be proud. Okay, how many of you think one? Okay, a little more. How many of you think two? Two. How many of you think three or more? How many of you will never raise your hand? (laughs) Oh, there's the largest one. The correct answer is one. There's one book of the Bible that does not mention God. Uh, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. And uh, Esther is a book about the, the people of Israel Uh, being really dependent on a particular king in order to give them freedom and this queen Esther who uh, really risks it all to kind of go to bat on behalf of her people. But God is not mentioned in the book. And yet when you read the book of Esther, what you see is that God is everywhere throughout the book. The, The people are very afraid because there's this king, there's this power that seems so authoritative and yet what you see in the book of Esther is that there's actually a king above those kings. There's a king that's actually guiding all of the events, God, who isn't particularly focused on or emphasized, but he's ruling for the good of his people. And I kind of think that that Luke, Luke, Luke wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. I think that Acts 12 is the Esther of the book of Acts because there's really not much reference here to the Lord Jesus. There's a little bit, uh, the angel of the Lord or the Lord delivered him, but, but Jesus isn't particularly focused on in this particular chapter, not like Jesus is focused on in many other chapters and other parts of the book of Acts. And there's this king that seems to be really important and that seems to be really powerful, and yet what we see in Acts chapter 12 is that there's a king above those kings. There's a king above those kings working For the good of his people. And so that's really what we're looking at here this morning is this king that's above all those kings. Now we don't often think in terms of king language. We're a democracy. We don't think of kings and kingdoms and rulers in that same sort of way. Um, But we live in a world that is constantly trying to rival Jesus' kingdom. And we can think about lots of powerful things in our culture that we might not think of as, as kingdoms, but, but they really are. There's a pursuit of a kingdom of self. And that seems to be the highest, the, the highest goal in our culture today is self-expression. Just be you be true to you, their self-esteem, their self-government, their self-love, self-expression, the kingdom of self. We could talk about the kingdom of money and consumption, how everything in our culture, no one cares really what happens in our culture until something happens economically. And once there's a hit to the economy, now we all wake up, now we all care. That shows you something. We live in a kingdom of money and consumption we live in a kingdom of power and fame where everybody's angling to be famous to be known to be important to be influential we live in a kingdom of sex and pleasure where combined with self-expression the highest goal is to express yourself sexually we live in a kingdom that pursues education and technology we think that education we just, just get people more educated if we could just give people the right technology then we would kind of usher in utopia does anybody think we're living in utopia? Now get this, there's a lot of places that need more education and need more technology, but we're in the epicenter of education and technology and we're not a better place for it necessarily. Not in all the ways that matter. Some of us, it's just the kingdom of comfort or the kingdom of family, or I just want, I just want my life to be comfortable, I just want my family to be healthy, I just want my thing to be good. And anything that threatens that, even God, Ugh, we don't want to go there. Now, that, a lot of that's out there in the culture and, and out there. And we go, yeah, yeah, that we live in a culture where all that. But, but here's the thing. This culture of a rival kingdom, it lives in here too. The way I experience it and feel it a lot is this sense that I always feel like I need to know everything. Or like we're going to give you the chance to ask a bunch of questions next week. I might get the chance to say, I don't know. Great question. Next. But I feel this pressure. I got to know everything. I got to, I got to, and, and not just about that, but I feel like if there's, if there's breaking news or people go, hey, did you hear about this? And it's like, no, oh, no. I, and you feel this sense of, oh, I missed out. I didn't know. I didn't know at all. Or I want to be everywhere, right? I want to be able to, to do everything I need to do at work and do everything I need to do with my family and do everything I need to do with friends. And I, in order to do that, I would have to be like everywhere all the time. Or I want to be able to do everything that everyone says is important. Oh my gosh, how much important stuff is there? You're supposed to sleep at least hour, eight hours a day. You're supposed to exercise at least probably an hour a day. If you really care about God, you're supposed to spend a lot of time with Him. Right? It's now noon, and I haven't done anything else. Like right? like this is like, oh, I just, And so I constantly feel this. I've got to know it all. I've got to be everywhere. I've got to do it all. Do you know what that is? That's me trying to rival God. Because listen, only God knows it all. Only God is everywhere. And only God can do everything. And so that sense in us that we got to know it all and do it all and be it all and be everywhere, that is the, the rival kingdom of the world that lives in our hearts. And so Jesus comes in this passage, again, not really explicitly, but governing over and ruling over all the things that happens to show us that Jesus is the true king. That's the title of today's message, Jesus, the true king. We're gonna look specifically at three areas that Jesus is king over. And the first one is suffering. Jesus is king over all suffering. Uh, Take a look if you have your Bible at Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says about that time Herod the king and I'll stop there for a moment this is uh Uh, Herod is not the king over the entire Roman Empire, uh, but he actually is a Jew who grew up in Rome and was friends with Caligula and a lot of these other important emperors of this particular time. And so he's been given a significant section of the Roman Empire to be king over, to be ruler over. Um, He's of Jewish ancestry and seems to be kind of, you know, playing to the role of Jews. And so he's in power. At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church so significant persecution breaks out here not just from the Jewish kind of religious leaders that's where it's been coming from before now it's coming from official government laying hands violent hands on some who belong to the church verse 2 he killed James the brother of John with the sword James is the first apostle to be killed for his faith He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. I I just, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think, how was John feeling during this whole time? Because when you read the Gospels, what you see is there's this trio. There's these three guys who are always together. It's Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. They're this kind of inner circle among the disciples, right? They're the ones that Jesus invites in when he's going to raise a little girl from the dead. They're the ones that Jesus invites up onto the mountain when he is transfigured and his glory that has to that point been veiled by his humanity, his glory shines and they alone of the disciples get to see it. They're the ones that are invited to pray with Jesus in the Mount of Olives on the night that he's betrayed. They keep having all of this access to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And if you're John, you have to be thinking, oh my gosh, James, my brother, has been killed. Peter has now been arrested. What about me? They'd had all this special access. They'd had all this stuff together in life, right? They were, they were the ones actually that were given nicknames by Jesus. Did you know that? Peter was nicknamed the Rock, and James and John were called the Sons of Thunder. I think Jesus was putting together a wrestling team. You know, the Rock and the Sons of Thunder. Maybe a band. I don't know. And, and, and it, I think John had to be going, Am I next? And this is ominous. Look look at verse 3. This was during the days of unleavened bread. This was during the Passover. Why is that ominous? What sort of tone is Luke trying to set as he writes this? Well, who else was arrested during the days of unleavened bread? Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, it was during the Days of the Unleavened Bread. It was during the Passover. And so Luke is trying to help us see, hey, remember how it went for Jesus? That's probably how it's going to go for Peter. James is killed. Peter is arrested. But Jesus is king over all of it. Now we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts, we've already seen it up to this point, that the gospel seems to move in power, and with that power also comes persecution. Right? Sometimes people even today will say, well, what are we in? Are we in a day where the church is going to thrive, or where the church is going to be persecuted? What if the answer is yes? Because Christians throughout history have said that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And so when the, the gospel of Jesus, the sun, shines out into a dark world, for some people it melts the ice and their lives are changed and they're transformed by the beauty of Jesus. And for other people, it, they're hardened and they're bitter. And so this persecution and this suffering is not an indication that God is against his people, but rather that the gospel is moving forward and the rival kingdoms are against his people. Now, Peter, as we read a little bit ago, is going to survive this. James didn't, but Peter did. And John, who must have been trembling during this whole thing, he went on to survive. And both Peter and John wrote letters. And it's fascinating in their letters that they both wrote the same thing. Here's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. John says the same thing. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So these guys have lived through this, and they say, hey, hey, this is part of the deal. Now, maybe you signed up for Christianity. Maybe you became a Christian, and you thought, oh, my gosh, it's eternal life, and it's joy abundantly, and it's life to the full, and this is incredible. And you're a few weeks in, and you're feeling the pressure of you became what? And, and, and you're starting to go, wait, 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 is this, is this, th- this isn't what I thought I agreed to? Well, I'm sorry if you thought something else, but that is what you agreed to. Because the, the early leaders of the church say, hey, don't be surprised when this happens. This happens. But in the midst of it, Jesus is king over all. Can't help but think as I look at verse three about the days of the unleavened bread about Jesus. And about how these disciples had the promise that Jesus was with them and how that must have encouraged them and strengthened them to keep going because Jesus had walked this road himself. Jesus had been down this road himself. Jesus had experienced this suffering himself. And so even though it might feel arbitrary, it's not because Jesus has entered into it and Jesus has experienced it. Here's what Tim Keller says about our response to suffering. He says, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. So many people walk away from the faith because of the suffering, because of the pain. And and listen, I I know that that is hard, and I know that it is difficult. And it is hard when you're experiencing suffering and pain to think, God, aren't you going to do something? And and sometimes He does. That's what we're going to read in the rest of the story. Sometimes he, He does rescue someone like Peter. But what about James? When James was arrested, wasn't he praying? When James was arrested, didn't the church and his friends and his family, weren't they probably praying? Sure. Yet James is killed and Peter is freed. And we go, this seems so senseless. This doesn't make sense. God, are you good? And what Keller says is, listen, if God is big enough to get mad at, he's also big enough to have reasons you can't understand. But you know he cares because he's experienced the pain himself. Jesus is king over all suffering. Secondly, Jesus is king over all powers. Jesus is king over all powers. I want to read together verses 4 through 19. Uh, there's some humorous things in here, and I, I want us to see how, how, how clearly this passage helps us see that, that we can trust the scripture and uh, that Jesus is king over all powers. So verse 4, and when he had seized him, Herod had, had seized Peter, he'd put him in prison Delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Uh, Historians tell us that a squad of soldiers was four soldiers. So there's four squads. So there's 16 soldiers guarding Peter. That might seem like a lot, but maybe Herod's heard about what happened back in Acts chapter 5 when Peter was imprisoned and an angel helped him escape. So he's going, hey, I've got to make sure I tighten this up. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, "'Get up quickly.'" I just think that's the detail of the scripture is so interesting and so funny, right? Like the light shone in the cell. Maybe the angels like, okay, the light didn't wake him up. <laughs> Boom! Like he kind of jabbed him in the side, right? Like what a level of detail. I mean, he could have said the angel woke him up, but the angel, you know, they kick him or elbow him or like how, did, you know, I don't know. They struck him in the side and said, "Get up quickly." And the chains fell off his hands. So the, 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 these, these chains that, that Luke emphasizes, he is so, you know, he's tied up with all these chains surrounded by all these people, and it just, whoom, just kind of melts off. And the angel said to him, verse 8, "'Dress yourself and put on your sandals.' And he did so. And he said to him, "'Wrap your cloak around you and follow me.' And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real.' but thought he was seeing a vision. That's incredible, right? He's thinking, this is a cool dream, but it's actually happening. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is amazing, right? He's standing out there. I guess I didn't dream that. So verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So he goes to the the house where the church is gathered and uh, the gospel writer Mark, some of you have read the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. His mom apparently had a big house, and a bunch of people were there praying. Verse 13: And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Who is it? Peter. Oh my gosh, we were just praying for you. And she runs inside. And he's thinking. So she runs inside, and then Luke records the debate that's happening inside, verse 15. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. Right, so inside there's a big debate about whether she's telling the truth. It's like, you've been praying for this, guys. And I think, like, even if it was his angel, open the door. That's pretty interesting. I don't know. But Peter continued knocking. Hello? It's really me. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This James he references is actually the brother of Jesus who's now a significant leader in the church. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Listen, I wanna focus in a moment on Jesus being the king over all powers, but but I think we have to pause here and and see the trustworthiness of the scriptures just for a second. Because this is a story that is kind of fantastic and crazy and seems made up, right? And, And if you're a person that's a little bit skeptical of the Bible already, you're kind of hearing this going, oh really? An angel, Okay, and the, and the chains just fell off and the gate just opened. Yeah, 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 yeah. But here's, here's what I want you to see. I think there's things in this text that show you this really happened. Uh, f- first of all, Luke goes out of his way to name the servant girl Rhoda. Why? Women, their testimony was not admissible in the court of law at this time. So why would he name her? Say, hey, here's a woman you could talk to as a witness. Here's her name. If, if he knew, no one would trust that. Why would he name her? Because it really happened and she was there. Why would, why would Luke go out of his way to record all these embarrassing things about the church? Right? Like if I were making this up, it'd be like the angel showed up and Peter said, I've been waiting for you. And the gate opened, and they got to the house where everyone had been praying, and they were lined up in a tunnel like soccer parents do. And Peter ran through and everyone said, We've been expecting you. Like that's how I'd make it up. But but it's written actually in a way that's embarrassing to the church. Embarrassing to Peter. He didn't even Am I sleepwalking? Why? Because it happened. And he's just writing it as it happened. It's not a made-up, fantastical, imaginary thing. It, this is what really happened. And what we see through all of this humor and through all of this story is that Jesus is king over all powers. Look at the powers described in verses 4 through 6. Uh, Herod had seized him, put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers. So sixteen soldiers are guarding him. You see in verse six, uh, Peter sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and there's sentries before the door guarding the prison. So there's just like maximum security everywhere. I I kind of imagine this like Michael Buffer, the uh, you know the boxing guy. In this corner. With 16 soldiers and lots of chains and all the strength that Rome can handle, Herod. And in this corner, the measly prayers of the church. (laughs) Right, because look at what it says in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And I think we kind of go, oh, (laughs) that's cute, church. You were praying. But Jesus is king over all powers. The powers of Rome, the powers of Herod, the powers of chains, the powers of iron gates, the powers of well-trained soldiers are not too much for King Jesus. And so in the kingdom of God, even the, the small, vulnerable, helpless prayers of God's people, God uses for his power. Right, sometimes we'll talk to someone who's experiencing difficulty and we'll say, Hey, is there anything I can do for you besides prayer? And I know what we're often doing there is we're saying, I want to tangibly love you in some particular way that, that you'll feel and experience, and I want to be a blessing to you. But, but what we often do when we say that is actually kind of minimize prayer. What, we're, what we often think, at least what I've often thought when I've said stuff like that, is like, Well, I'll pray. And that probably won't do anything. But is there anything real I could do? Now, we never say that out loud, but isn't that kind of what we think? And yet it's the prayers of God's people that Jesus uses to defeat the powers of Herod. Why? Here's a quote, maybe you've seen cycling through our pre-service slides by Paul Miller. He says this, prayer is bringing your helplessness to Jesus. That's what prayer is. Prayer is bringing your helplessness to Jesus. Prayer is saying, Jesus, I can't do it. Jesus, I don't have what it takes. Jesus, I'm stuck. And you know what? When we bring our helplessness to Jesus, that is Jesus' perfect opportunity to bring his strength and to bring his power but a lot of times we don't pray because in our hearts we kind of think, I got it. I got it. I, I can overcome this temptation. I, I, you know, if I just, just kind of get some time with my teenager, you know, all the kind of crazy that broke out in our house, I'll be able to talk about it and we'll fix it. Well, you know what? I, here's, this, here's this difficult situation at work and this other person, that just seems like they're acting crazy. And I, but you know what? I, I, I got it. And we feel strong. And we feel powerful. We feel capable. Well, why pray? But prayer is bringing your helplessness to Jesus. Now listen, we might pray and God says no, like he said to James. And we might pray and God says yes, like he said to Peter. But if we don't pray, What we're actually doing is through our prayerlessness saying we're bought into the kingdom of the world which is about self and power and I can do it. And so it's actually by humbling ourselves, by being vulnerable, by being helpless that we not only give Jesus the opportunity to work in power but we allow the kingdom of God to come in power into our needy, vulnerable, helpless hearts. Jesus is king over all suffering. And Jesus is king over all powers. And finally, Jesus is king over all kings. Jesus is king over all kings. There's a very particular uh, political situation described in verse 20 just to give background to the reader, it says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So Herod's in some sort of food dispute with this other country. Uh, The details of that are not particularly important other than it sets up this big moment that begins in verse 21. It says there, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Now, Luke details the, the historic events surrounding that, but also there's a Jewish uh, non-Christian historian from the first century named Josephus. And if you read Josephus, he actually has a very detailed account about this same occasion, that Herod had, had come into this kind of amphitheater setting, and the royal robe, that's the phrase Luke uses, Josephus actually describes the royal robe as being made of all silver, And so he comes in in the morning, and it's a particularly bright day, and he delivers this extremely eloquent speech, and with the light shining on his silver robe, it was as though he was glowing. It was resplendent. And so the people respond to that, verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Josephus records the same thing, that they were shouting, this is no mere mortal, And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus records that on that very day, Herod came down with a stomach illness and five days later died, probably from some sort of intestinal thing. Most historians think it was a parasite. Why? Because of this devastating phrase because he did not give god the glory you're you're a god not a man yeah give me a little more of that keep that coming listen god gives real power to people, God gives real authority and leadership and influence and title and role and importance to people. But if you have the position of authority and power and influence and title and you use it to receive God-like praise without giving God the glory, that's evil. And this is, in a sense, the essence of sin, isn't it? Right, like We could talk about sin as kind of breaking the rules and that sort of a thing. But when you look at the essence of sin, the essence of sin is I want to be glorious like God. I want to know it all. I want to be everywhere. I want to do it all. I want to receive praise. Look at me. That's what sin is. Sin is I don't, I don't want to obey God's kingdom. I don't want to have to do what he says. I, I don't want to have to be bound by anything. I just want to express myself. That's what sin is. Because he did not give God the glory, he's building his own kingdom that he thinks is above Jesus' kingdom. This also is why we deserve judgment. Sometimes people will say, gosh, I I just find it so hard to believe that God would would judge people, that he'd send people to hell just for not believing in Jesus. Jesus. Now get this. God doesn't judge people or send people to hell just for not believing in Jesus. He judges and condemns people who will not give God the glory. Who say, look at me. It's about me. It's what I want. I'm king. God will not take that. God will judge that. God will strike that down. And it may be with worms in a moment Or it may be at the end of the age when we stand before him. And the judgment will not just be, You rejected my son. The judgment will be, You lived for you and only you. And I gave you a way out in Jesus. I came. I humbled myself. I lived a life of suffering and death that you deserve to die. I made a way for you in Jesus. If you would recognize that he's the king above all kings, that he's the glorious one, and you didn't want him. This is a preview of the future for all who will not repent of their self-glory And give attention to the only one who's truly glorious, Jesus the king above all kings. That's what this is. Verse 24 concludes the passage this way. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Amazing reversal in this passage. At the beginning of it, James was dead, Peter was in prison, and Herod was multiplying and triumphing. At the end of the passage, Herod's dead, Peter's free, and the word of God is triumphing. That's also a preview of the future. That no matter how dark it looks, no matter how tough it looks, no matter how much it looks like the odds are stacked against the people of God, Jesus is king over that, and he will reverse all that in the end. Now, here's a question that I want to ask, just to try to bring this home and try to help us to live in a world that is difficult often, and here's the question, how do we faithfully face the threats of rival kingdoms? So we know that Jesus is king over all that, and yet we experience these rival kingdoms. We experience it in our hearts, we experience it in the world, and there's these threats. There's these threats that say, if you won't bow the knee to self-expression, off with your head. If you won't bow the knee to money and consumption and sex and pleasure and education and technology and a godless world. If you won't bow the knee to that, off with your head. There's a kind of mentality in the culture that does that. How do we face that threat faithfully? Well, the text shows us two ways. The first one is we pray. Look at verse five, we've talked about this already. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Listen, you face opposition, you face difficulty, the temptation is to just worry about it. One of the things we've said before is that worry is just praying to yourself. Isn't it? If prayer is taking your helplessness to Jesus, worry is feeling all your helplessness, feeling all your vulnerability, feeling all your angst, and just telling yourself about it that's praying to yourself but but prayer is bringing our helplessness to jesus so when we face these threats they are real threats we are not intended to kind of close our eyes and shut our ears and go blah 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 there's no real threat there's no real pain there's no real suffering it's real and we really are helpless so we pray We bring it to the Lord. We say, God, I'm going to try to trust you. God, I don't know if I have what it takes. God, I need your spirit in me to give me the ability to do what I can't do right now, which is to trust you. We pray. But secondly, we see this in verse six, we sleep. Look at verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping. find that detail fascinating. Peter wasn't up all night worried. And get this, he wasn't even up all night praying. Or as we'll see Paul later on in the book of Acts, when he's in prison, he's up all night singing praises to God. Peter's not even doing that. Presumably, at some point in the night, as he's shackled between these people, he prayed, he said, Lord, maybe he did what... In between his own fits of sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe he maybe he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then he went to sleep. Because sleep is a statement. Sleep is a statement of worship, a statement of trust that says, God, I'm not you. You don't need sleep. I do. And you're running the universe fine while I sleep. How do we respond to a threatening world, to a difficult world? We pray. We bring these real, serious, difficult challenges to God, and then we sleep. We rest. We put it in his hands. We trust him. And we can trust him because we know that he's king over our suffering, he's king over all powers, and he's king over all kings. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, every one of us tonight will, or today at some point, will feel tired. But you won't. Lord, every one of us at some point will need wisdom and counsel but you won't. Every one of us will feel anxious and afraid and uncertain, but you won't. So Father, I pray that in our sleeping and in our praying and in our trusting, you would show yourself to be king over whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through. Lord, we know sometimes you'll answer yes and sometimes you'll answer no, but we... Know that through all of it, you've promised. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, Lord, would that be our great delight, not in the change of our circumstances as much as we might want it, but in the reality of your presence with us. God, you love us so much. We don't deserve it, but we're thankful for it. God, I pray that we would not be among those who refuse to give you the glory that's due your name. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Amen.